Hi, uh, welcome to The Dotted Line, Episode 10, a series on contract drafting presented by Davis Wright Tremaine. Uh, my name is Craig Baker, and with me, as always, this is Wendy Kearns, and today we're going to be talking about representations, warranties, and disclaimers, uh, or also an episode also known as I do, and I, I promise to, and I promise to not. That's right. That's right. I think that this is when clients see these things in contracts that they they pick up the phone and, and call the lawyers. Um, it's also where um, we start seeing the all caps uh, language, and, and we'll get into that um, in, in the warranties. Um, and when I think of the reps and warranties, um, you know, I think that um, normally what I'll, when I think about it, I think about um, the different categories um, of representations and warranties that an entity or organization in the contract um, is is entering into. So, um, you know, there's the the um, right power and authority sufficiency sort of what's the sort of corporate um, elements to it, and then there's um, sort of the performance and quality standards, and then there's other kinds of of compliance. Um, pieces, then we'll we'll dig through those in in turn. I mean, Wendy, how do you think about it when you get to this part of the um, agreement? What's the first thing that you're thinking about? Um, you know, in in the document. Well, uh, honestly, a lot of what I think about is sort of the historical nature of some of these clauses and uh, how you know how custom and trade and how areas of different um, uh, different parts of the law kind of affect these. Uh, it's it, the warranty section, and by, by that I mean the warranty section can kind of be boilerplate or cut and pasted in from, uh, you know, other sections and, and, and other areas of the, the law. And so sometimes you want to actually think about what, you know, what does all this mean? Is this language here because it actually has an impact or is this language here because it's just kind of always been in, in, in the agreement. And um, to get more specific about that, you know, these warranty uh, clauses have a lot of history from the Uniform Commercial Code or the UCC. Uh, and so even where we don't see, you know, goods in place uh, or things that would otherwise be subject to the UCC, we see a lot of language that is from the UCC. Uh, we also see language that could be from other types of contracts. Uh, like for example, if it's a technology agreement, we might see things that are from more like uh, corporate agreements. Um, and, and so sometimes people's forms just have a lot of stuff that is dumped in um, that's just kind of you know, been passed down through the gender, you know, the years of, of lawyering, uh, but may not have anything to actually do with the agreement. And some of it certainly does. But uh, what I really do, first of all, is try to parse through what what's in here and why. Yeah, no, I do the same thing. Uh, you know, I think that you're right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this section that's very pro forma, um, not always applicable. Um, and what I'm always looking for is what are the what are the variations? What are the non-standard quirks that somebody might have added? Um, and I think this is where, um, and we'll see this with, I think, the next couple of episodes where, you know, small words, you know, one or two um, variations in, in the drafting can have really significant impacts in terms of the allocation of risk between the parties. Um, and so I, I think, I, yeah, I, I do exactly the same thing, which is um, some of it I just sort of gloss over whether it's applicable or not, because I know it's just kind of there and it's boilerplate. Um, 
and and really I'm looking for the the specifics um, in 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 a this in in a particular um, instance and and this goes back I think one of the things too that is important is that there are a lot of people who just that they have a playbook and they just kind of play it against these kinds of, of clauses and they don't necessarily think about what the power of and the leverage of the parties, what it is that somebody is buying and selling, what those implications are. And so um, I, I've definitely seen this in the past where people have just said, well, these are our standard reps and warranties and I delete these and I substitute these others and it, it's not relevant um, or it may even actually be worse for the party just because they, they want to sort of sub their standard um, materials in. So yeah, one of the formal ones that uh, I think we see a fair amount is uh, a um, power authority and sufficiency warranty, which would be a, a warranty that reads something like, you know, the parties warrant that they have sufficient of power and authority to enter into this agreement and perform the, you know, obligations set forth uh, herein. Uh, this is kind of one of these you know, it's kind of one of these overly formal agreements. I mean, in today, in today's day and age, a lot of people will assume that the other, they know who they're dealing with on the other side and they, you know, the warranty may be wholly unnecessary. Um, I do think that that type of warranty could be necessary in a, uh, you know, a, a, with an organization that is maybe a bit more of a complex conglomerate. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, sometimes I, I think of the, these warranties is relatively harmless and I just kind of, uh, you know, edit them for a sanity check them, but otherwise pa pass them through, even though maybe strictly not necessary for some contracts. Yeah, no, I agree. Almost no one, I, I can't remember someone objecting to a, to a right power and authority um, piece. I mean, it, it can come up. I think the place where it's most relevant in today's day and age is in a, in a click through um, environment where you have somebody who may or may not have signing authority on behalf of, of an organization. But, yeah, that's true. That's true. But, yeah. but for most part, you don't see it. Um, occasionally, you'll see an, a, a, a gloss on this where someone wants to make sure that the um, licensing uh, or the service license or the service provider has sufficient um, um, rights um, and licenses and, and things necessary to provide the services. Usually this is in the context of, you know, they, they have a, a sort of a government franchise or um, some other sort of piece of paper that, that gives them authority to, to, to do this. Sometimes maybe a, a, you'd see this in a reseller agreement or in a um, sort of unauthorized um, retailer uh, kind of context, but it, yeah, those yeah. warranties are kind of interesting. Um, the one, the one that you're talking about, because sometimes those can be a little bit of a backdoor to a non-infringement clause as well. Right. Um, so you know, another type of common warranty is uh, you know the intellectual property doesn't in uh, or the technology or whatever it is, uh, the content, you know, whatever it is that's the subject of the agreement doesn't infringe on any third party. Right rights and it could be a patent or warranty or non-infringement of patents, copyrights, all intellectual property, you know, whatever. Um, but the clause that you're just talking about there, Craig, if worded broadly enough, it could be even Agreed. a more broad uh, in, intellectual property uh, infringement and, and maybe, you know, the party didn't intend to give something so broad. So that that's just a drafting um, tip for people to, to look at. Um, what, what well, and it's, it, I mean, the corollary to the point you're making too is this, um, another sort of standard um, 
um, rep uh, and warranty that we will see um, is this, um, there's no conflict with other agreements, you have the capacity to perform. Um, it looks like a pro forma warranty and in, in many ways it is, um, but if you think about it, if, if I have, if I'm entering into a contract that might be in conflict with a previously granted conflict, that's another way to sort of backdoor a much broader um, commitment with respect to rights and intellectual property. Um, and so um, understanding, you know, again, this is a pretty boilerplate warranty and yet um, could have significant implications depending on what it is that um, is being done under the contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in in professional services warranty or, or agreements, uh, we usually see a warranty of performance and quality standard. You might see like you know the the services uh, or goods will be delivered you know with workmanlike uh, workman under workmanlike standards or uh, uh, other sorts of standards, highest industry standards, first class standards, timeliness. You know those those kinds of uh, uh, those kinds of things. You 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 generally see a statement or two about that wherever there are professional services involved. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a view on on the difference between a professional war a warranty that the services are going to be provided in a professional manner versus a workmanlike manner? Um, yeah, I, I think workmanlike again has a bit of the history, you know, in in some and some case, case law and statutory uh, law, so that there is a little bit of a difference where I think professional is per perhaps a more loose standard. But uh, what's what do you think, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. Workmanlike is a historical drafting um, nuance, but it also um, I generally will try and get professional in just because it seems like it it implies a a standard of care and quality um i'm not sure whether it does um yeah, I, I just right. always i just always add it um i was actually yeah. asking that question in part because i was curious yeah um, i've seen professional and workman like it probably is just trying to catch you know the 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 historical case law uh what's the definition of workman like and yeah and this sort of you know higher higher quality but I think that one one of the questions always is though is I think with any kind of professional services is it's not just the quality of the work, um, but you may also be trying to get some kind of um, commitment with respect to the qualifications of the people providing the work, um, mm -hmm. and workman workmanlike is more about the way that the work is being provided. So if I'm going to hire somebody to come fix my house, workmanlike is that they're going to do it in a diligent way, but I may or may not know whether or not they have sufficient skills, um, you know, to do that. And then the yeah. other thing too or is- act, like, Or act professionally, I suppose. Or yeah, act I think these are, yeah. these are good, these are good uh, uh, things that are food for thought, correct? Yeah. And then the other thing is that I will um, also see, you'll often see folks push back on a time um, warranty um, where people people agree to provide the services in a in a diligent way, but they won't necessarily commit to doing it in a timely way. And I, I've I've experimented with all sorts of different ways to try and um, ensure that if I'm if I'm the the sort of buyer of the professional services, um, that I'm going to get some commitment that that the services are going to be provided in accordance with a time frame um, and and that can be if, if you have that conversation squarely um, with with the other entity that can be um, that can be a difficult conversation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah I, I, I agree 
Um, another one uh, that we see is compliance with laws. The parties warrant that they will comply with law. Now, this one is, it, depending on the type of the agreement and the, the parties and what they're willing to commit, this one is one where I see a bunch of different types of modifiers. Uh, you know, one um, modifier is, is it compliance with law under the agreement or is it just that the party is, you know, during the term of the agreement is going to not get any, into any legal trouble, you know, uh, as a, as a corporation or other entity, like they're, they're just going to comply with law in the course and scope of their business operations. Um, you know, often it's just, you know, comply with law under the agreement, but it, again, it kind of depends on the nature of the contract. Um, another one is what laws, uh, you know, right. so it could be uh, applicable is a very common um, modifier. Sometimes it needs to be more specific than that, like applicable to people who are operating cloud services, applicable to, you know, or, or only privacy laws or only what you know like so i i think this this one is 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 an area where you could write yourself a pretty big liability check uh on on whoever the is giving the warranty if you don't sort of contemplate what it is that gives right would give rise to a claim here if there is a breach of some kind of law I and mean, due to the complexity of our laws and regulatory systems it's it's not not hard to breach some law at some point in a the course of a scope of a, a life of a corporation but i don't know how, how do you address this one craig well i mean i think that and in, in one, one of the things to always think about and we'll, we'll talk about remedies um i think in just a second but but you know when you're thinking about compliance with law if there's not a representation to comply with law you're not it's not that you don't have an obligation to comply with law. Obviously, yeah, that's absolutely uh, true. Yeah, obviously you do. Yeah. The question is, should if you don't comply with the applicable law, you know, does the counterparty have a breach of contract claim against you? Or if, depending on how your indemnification clause is written, is there an indemnifiable um, uh, or is there an indemn indemnification obligation for that failure to comply with law? And so, yeah, or I, a direct con contract breach liability. Exactly, yeah. and, and contract damages. So, so when it comes to compliance with laws, um, I often put that in there, um, and and it's actually another way that you can try and get um, a rep of non infringement because you know the the copyright law you know, says you're not supposed to infringe. And so it's a violation of law if you're um, infringing the copyright. Um, so it's another way if you're trying to sort of create that liability that you can can get a, get a breach there if you don't have a, a direct um, non-infringement warranty. But the, um, but yeah, so I, I, I often will um, think about this in the context of where the rest of the damages are as opposed to um, whether or not you know whether or not I need this this warranty in the agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and then there's also I think um, you know we often will see some you know generic representation with respect to either a product or a service that is going to comply with industry standards, highest industry standards. Um, we'll also use um, we'll also see an obligation for the. Um, you know, you're gonna gonna represent more that you're gonna use best efforts um, or all commercially reasonable efforts, um, and this is where these little words can really matter because you know there's a big difference between using good faith efforts, reasonable efforts, commercially reasonable efforts, 
best efforts. And then if you're going to use the modifier all, well, that, that, you know, and, and I'll see this a lot with respect to security representations where someone's- Yeah, yeah the industry standards with respect to securities. Yeah, yeah and, and there's also a big difference between industry standards and highest industry standards um, because highest is literally the highest. And, um, uh, and then also what industry are you being tied to? So there's a lot of variability um, within this kind of commitment of effort or standards um, in a document and and um, it's a place that you should probably you know when you're drafting pause on and sort of in ensure that you're thinking through what the right scope is um, and what your client is comfortable with um, yeah this is definitely one the industry standards one is definitely where you you know you should be consulting with client and the te and technical people if it's a technology agreement or whoever is delivering you know the goods or, or services um it, you know if it's if it's something that uh, the client doesn't normally commit to uh because some Sometimes these things are very specific as to the, the uh, goods or services that are being provided under the agreement or, you know, the ones that are that, you know, your client is, is procuring. Um, for taking Craig's example, you know, the highest industry standards with respect to um, security or, or industry standards with respect to security. And, you know, there for four different industries, there are, you know, different um security certifications or audits or you know other things and technology agreements that um client may not have but they may be considered industry uh industry standards so this is not one that should this is not uh, one of these reps and warranties that is a little more of a um legal thing this is a, a little bit more business uh, of a business oriented warranty yeah no i completely agree with that and and i would say a lot of times my experience has been that the clients you know, if they see the word reasonable or commercially reasonable, they don't, they, they sort of are, are finished at that point and they're, they're willing to um, concede to that or, or agree to that. And I think it's important to make sure that the client, you know, there, this may be a place where you need to um, educate the client a little bit more as to the implications. Um, and I see this um, risk um, be significant where a um, you, you either have a small service provider who doesn't, you know, hasn't necessarily done the due diligence and, um, and consultation, I mean, done the due diligence or, or um, sort of compliance work yet, um, or on the other hand, um, somebody who's moving into a different, you, you have a, even a large service provider, but they're moving into a specific regulated area because what is industry standard for financial services or for healthcare um, may not be industry standard for generic um, sort of B2B services. And I've had a number of clients who've suddenly decided they're going to pivot into a regulated um, category without having done any due diligence. And then suddenly they're being asked to comply with applicable law. They're being asked to comply with um, with Whatever the standards of the industry are. Yeah. And, yeah. and they've, never, they've, never, they've never contemplated what that actually means. Right. Um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, perhaps last for this, this section before we move on to disclaimers is the well, um, compliance with specifications, which is another thing that we see um, pretty often, uh, where there's usually an attachment or some for other documents uh, that says, you know, whatever it is I'm going to deliver, you are going to comply with uh, the, these uh, specifications. Again, you know, sort of thinking through the little words that might matter, you know, is it 
substantial compliance? Is it material compliance? Is it 100% compliance? Is it use commercially reasonable efforts to comply? You know, is it best efforts to comply with the specifications and then, you know, make sure that the specifications uh, are, are drafted clearly because uh, there could be a dispute around, around that. Yeah, no, my favorites is when you make a warranty to comply with the specifications that are in the statement of work and the statement of work is the marketing copy um, that somebody has, has put in. So you're basically making a warranty that you're gonna comply with what's in the marketing copy, which I think is always a, if I can get that as the as the licensee, I'm always delighted. Um, yeah. We we wanna come back, I think, before we, we sort of finish with warranties and make sure that we talk about non-infringement. We've sort of talked about it a bunch um, through here, but, um, you will see um, approaches, um, I, I think most people will have as a standard approach, they'll have a, a representation of non-infringement um, of any sort of intellectual property right. Sometimes you'll have that representation be drafted very broadly. It's not just intellectual property right, but it's ever any other privacy right, person, personal right, personality, personality right. Publicity pro rights, proprietary, proprietary rights. rights. Yeah. Um, all, all begin with P. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so, um, and, and so, so one is to make sure that that right is scoped. But the second question is, um, depending on where you are as the party and, and, and things is, you know, is this um, warranty, how does this warranty fit into the indemnification obligation of the parties? And, and one thing you'll often see from service providers is that they want to reject the representation of non-infringement and just make a commitment to um, to infringe, I mean, a commitment to um, indemnify for for the in infringement, um, and so you you have to sort of figure out how you're going to manage to that. Um, and and one of the places, and and then we also see a non buy. I, I see this increasingly as well, particularly on the in the cloud service provider agreements, which is a, a representation um, and warranty of of no viruses in the in the system, um, and and um, you know, and and it begs the question about how do you know? Um, and, and can you make a, a representation, which is about the current status of, of where you are, and then make a warranty, which is, you know, your ongoing commitments, you know, can you make those those commitments to um, something that maybe you don't know about? I mean, clearly, there are data breaches where bad um, interlopers are, are in a system, and you have no idea that that it exists. So trying to figure out when and under what circumstances a knowledge qualifier would be, you know, appropriate, you know, when you need to make the, the, the representation or warranty at all. Um, that's, that's something that's often discussed. Um, and, and my experience of these discussions is either that they are not done at all, or they are done at an incredibly granular level. Um, there's sort of no in between with respect to this issue. Some people, yeah. Um, some people nip will will go through like every word, you know, figure out what are the what are the qualifiers for these warranties? What's the expansion? What's the time frame? What's the you know what what all of it? I agree. <laughs> they either nitpick them to death or they just are like whatever. <laughs> yep. Yep. So you were um, so. Um, uh, what did you have next? Disclaimers. On let's let's, let's now that we've made all these warranties, let's let's talk about how to rule these warranties out. Um, in, in in general, the disclaimer section will pretty much always be in all caps, uh, even when it's not legally required. And there's many cases where it's not legally required, um, either under the UCC or under 
Magnuson Moss, which is the consumer um, warranty legislation, um, it, or you know, by state law or whatever. It, it, sometimes it's not required at all to be in, in caps, and it would be perfectly legally effective to be um, in just written in sentence case. But uh, you know, this kind of goes to my first point, which is that the contract drafting things are is it, it's often just. Uh, course and scope of trade and lawyers being used to doing things one way. And so we always just write these things in caps and, and that's probably the way it's going to be for some period of, of time. Uh, any thoughts on other thoughts on that, Craig? No, 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 that's exactly right. The only thought I had is that I often will get contracts um, that don't, when they're not capitalized and almost without exception, you can do the um, the forensics on the contract and it originally was a Canadian contract or it was an English contract because they don't they don't capitalize those they don't capitalize um, it, yeah. disclaimers of warranties typically um, in those jurisdictions. And so it's really interesting to just to see the language is almost identical, but the capitalization is not. And uh, um, and so it's it's um, it's just a little it's, it's always a little bit dissonant when you're. Yeah. When you're, yeah. And, and the capitalization comes from, you know, the American certain American legal requirements that these disclaimers be prominent right. and noticeable. Uh, so right. that's 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 why. So, you know, I think even if not legally required, you're probably just saving yourself some headache by capitalizing it in the first place, because the lawyer on the opposite side will probably just capitalize it. <laughs> for you. Right. Yeah. right. But I mean, but but to that point, it, I mean, when I draft a contract, I always capitalize it. If I get another contract and it's not capitalized, that's probably not one of the um, the changes that I'm going to make um, as a matter of course, um, unless it's it's in a consumer facing context. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, or you know, yes, something else. But yeah, I, I so some some warranties that uh, we see here, or some disclaimers that we see here, uh, come from the UCC. And again, even if not uh, strictly applicable, you probably see them anyway, um, such as you know, warranty of merchantability, which uh, under the UCC means you know, fit for sale, uh, or the warranty of uh, fitness for a particular disclaimer of the warranty for fitness. Of uh, for a particular purpose, which means you know it was it's suited to the purposes for which the buyer needs it. Um, sometimes there's a disclaimer of warranty of non-infringement here, uh, and so you you know, see some things that uh, are are disclaimers, and and again, even if not legally required, they just kind of passed through. Um, there's also a, you know, a litany of other warranties that may have, or disclaimers that may have some pretty significant impacts if, uh, if someone just allows them to pass through, such as like, uh, we disclaim that the product or software is error free, you know, it's, it's not going to be error free, or it's not going to, um, there's, there's, there's not going to lose any data or, you know, something like that. Uh, people will sh try to shove a bunch of stuff in these, uh, in these disclaimers. Uh, sometimes they'll say, well, unless we warrant it elsewhere, uh, we disclaim all of this stuff. Uh, so uh, if you're the one buying the uh, product, you, you got to read these disclaimers carefully. It's easy to just say, oh, you know, a bunch of historical boilerplate, you know, keep keep moving. Um, but in today's, you know, technology day and age, you know, trying to make sure that these um, sometimes boilerplate provisions actually fit the situation is really important. Right. No, I think that that's right. I mean, I generally try and have that fight 
elsewhere, I make sure that the disclaimer is, you know, except as otherwise provided in the agreement. Um, I like to try and and um, create that exception of the disclaimer to, to include the entire agreement, not just the warranties um, and representations and warranties section. Um, but um, I, I have found that, you know, having a fight over the boilerplate um, about error free and everything tends to, you know, people, people tend to get, um, you know, they've never had to negotiate that before. And so they don't really know how to cope with it. So they'll, um, they'll be happy to have a conversation about how the SLA, you know, the disclaimer doesn't apply to the SLA and then you can have the, the fight in the SLA. So, um, but I think that that's, um, that's an important point. Um, I, I also think that there is within this, within the disclaimers, a lot of disclaiming of um, reliance obligations. Um, and you'll see that some in the error-free and, and we're not going to lose any data. Um, I also see it a lot with respect to consultants and in professional services agreements. Um, you will pay some you know, expensive consultant with lots of degrees to come in and opine on, on how great your um, uh, or how to improve your services and how to, to improve your business models and things like that. Um, and then they will be very clear to say that, you know, all the decisions you're making are your own independent decisions and we don't have any liability. We're not making any commitments or promises with respect to um, um, the, the quality of, of what we're doing. Um, and so I think that those are um, important um, to parse um, because those can be, um, some of them are fair, um, you know, if I'm a, if I'm, if I'm have a medical device, I'm going to expect the doctor to use independent judgment to, to make an evaluation. Um, but some of them are not fair. You know, I, I should be able to depend on, you know, my, my professional services people to be, have a minimum level of competence in, in terms of what they're delivering to me. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Craig, we have a question from the audience. Outstanding. Are you ready? I am ready. I, I and and while this is an audience question, this is definitely one that I've heard many times before. Uh, so here it is. Once and for all, what's the difference between representations, warranties, and covenants? And do these things matter? So what's what's your thoughts, Craig? Um, so I think that they matter and they don't matter at the same time. I, I guess I don't. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, there, there is a technical difference, and um, and you've heard me um, butchering that technical difference all the way through this podcast. Um, you know, technically, representations are things that you are are statements that you are making about the characteristics of the thing that you're you're providing at the time. So I represent that at the time that this. Um, agreement is being signed that I own the title to the thing that I'm I'm giving you rights to. Yeah, um, or there's, you know, I represent that as of the date of this agreement, there's no litigation affecting the, you know, whatever. Some, some exactly, sort. exactly. And then the warranty is sort of that ongoing promise that you're making about um, about the performance. So I'm gonna I'm gonna warrant that the services I'm providing um, during the course of the agreement are. Um, you know, professional and 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 workmanlike in, in terms of, of of that, and so I think that there, I mean, there's a sort of a temporal difference um, in those things. I don't. I, I I'm trying to think if I've actually had um, someone in the last few years sort of want to say that well, we're going to represent this, but we're not going to warrant this. Um, you know, typically what I see instead is that people are going to going to draft in specific timeframes. They're going to make a statement about something and then it's an ongoing representation throughout the agreement. Um, or I'm going to represent and warrant 
um, that these things meet specifications for 90 days after the effective date or something. And I think that that's kind of the way that contemporary drafting has sort of attacked this difference. I don't know, Wendy, what's your experience? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I think the one real difference in pra practicalities is, you know, a representation or a covenant, which is a contract promise, you know, those typically are, could be breaches of the agreement in which there's like maybe a contract, you know, suit. And that could be the case for some warranties, but other warranties have specific remedies attached to them. Right. So you might say, you know, why we warrant that the, uh, thing is going to comply with specifications for 90 days, but if it doesn't, you know, we will do x y and z you know will repair or replace or refund or something like that that you might see those sorts of things more typically attached um to the warranty clause as opposed to a representation or warranty so that's just one more practical impact of these clauses um excellent well um what is your wendy what is your tip trick or quirk of the week well, it kind of goes back to something I mentioned earlier, which is uh, examining the difference between warranties uh, and, and whether it's in a consumer agreement or whether it's in a business to business agreement and just making sure you know what laws apply. You know, between companies, there's much more latitude to, you know, write these warranty clauses how you want and you know, kind of do what, what you want to do. And, and it's sort of like, it's almost like two grownups can kind of agree. There's like not too much legislation or legal issues or constraints around what parties might, con might contract. Um, but if you're dealing with a product that's going to go out to consumers or an agreement with consumers, really important that you double that you go through the Magnuson Moss Act and state warranty. Um, and th there's definitely lots of guidance out there. Uh, but there's very specific rights and remedies that you have to include in ways in which you need to write those those warranties. So if you're in that space, and you, uh, you know, and this is the first time you're doing you're doing that don't just assume you can just write it the same way as with any any contract you know you, you gotta like actually do the legal checks or work with someone who knows who knows what they're doing in that space right no i think it's that's really a great great tip because um consumer facing warranties and, and what you can disclaim particularly in the context of um of state regulation um is um you know that that can be a significant risk i know um, New Jersey had for about two and a half years, they had a bunch of things you couldn't disclaim and it just caused all sorts of problems for, um, for e-commerce providers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're being U.S. centric here because we're U.S. lawyers, but also like if it's a global product, many other countries uh, have even more strict uh, limitations of what you can disclaim. Well, and they won't let you disclaim them about even in commercial settings. I mean, right. we'll talk about that in, in limitations of liability yeah, as well, but yeah. but yeah, that's a great point. Um, so this week, um, my um, my uh, tip is um, I, I wanted to go back to the knowledge qualifier, um, which um, sort of understanding how to use that, um, particularly as it relates to um, to intellectual property and virus um, commitments. Um, you know what what you know if you're a service provider, you 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 know these are often strict liability um, statutes and strict liability. 
um, warranties that you're making and you can't always know whether something is um, infringing or not. But on the other hand, you know, what level of due diligence are you going to make uh, a commitment to, to make? You know, when you're negotiating corporate agreements, they often will have knowledge qualifiers that, you know, talk about who actually has to have knowledge. It's usually at a C level and everything, but I, I rarely see that in operational agreements. And so, um, you know, there is a lot of back and forth about knowledge qualifiers and, and understanding the exact scope. I think it's one of those things that people don't often think through when they're both adding it or deleting it or, or trying to sort of um, um, bring it into the agreement. So that's, um, that's my tip of the week. Well, fantastic. Excellent. Well, uh, this has been episode 10 of The Dotted Line. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, next episode, we are going to talk about indemnification, which is a closely related uh, clause to, to this and one of the risk management clauses that us lawyers love to spend lots of time on. So uh, this is Wendy. This is Craig. And thank you um, for tuning into The Dotted Line. We'll see you next week.